Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 329 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with uh, co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah Rue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we start off with a feature of award-winning author Deborah Goodrich-Royce and her latest release, Reef Road, which Publishers Weekly calls an expertly paced thrill ride. New York Journal of Books also calls it an exciting page-turning intelligence. And next, we have a two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt. Uh, Paul Reale tells us how to get started. Yeah, and we also dive into book one, drumroll please, in the Right Quote series, The Writing Life. Uh, and we uh, yeah, we share the foreword that, uh, that Sarah wrote for that uh, for that book. And we talk a little bit about uh, some of our favorite quotes. And then uh, we share the audio version of uh, my reflections for book one. So that should be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's going to be great. We've got so much good stuff in there. And then we're also going to finish up today with our reading recommendations, our book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. Yeah, and uh, I heard the hold the dog walk the dog the dog walk. Here we go again. The dog walk. The dog. My dog earwig. The dog. The dark side. Okay, uh, we'll just leave it. Sorry about this, listeners. You just you know no editing today. All right. So uh, anyway, uh, before this, uh, before we get going here, uh, we're going to check in quickly with uh, the co-host. Uh, so Sarah, what's up? Uh, let's see. Well, I think this episode is coming out on the March 7th. So um, a few days after that, on the 10th, I'm going to be participating in an event with the Charlotte Art League. They're doing an acrostic exhibit, um, which is pretty cool. They invited artists and poets, and they assigned each poet a piece of art done by a local artist to write a poem about. Um, and then we're going to be able to share our works there and do a little bit of a reading. So it'll be super cool to, to get there in person and actually see like all the works of art in person. But I think the event is open to the public if you're interested, um, March 10th with the Charlotte Art League. Um, I also recently was on a different podcast called the Page One Challenge, which is a kind of cool new like short form podcast, super short the episodes are about three minutes long. Um, and the host, Jeff, basically shares the first page of a book. And um, then the idea is he, he shares the first page without telling you what book it's from. And then you find out after the fact, the title and the author, and you get to kind of decide, is this something I would want to continue reading just based on the first page alone? Um, so you can check that out at the page one challenge.com. I think it's also on Spotify and other platforms. Um, and my book, the plus one was on a recent episode of, of that, which was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I've been working on lately. How about y'all? Nice. What's up? What's up, Hannah? What's up with me? Um, let me think. <laughs> I feel like I've been drowning in like a pile of books that I need to read for various reasons. So there's that. <laughs> Swimming in words right now. Um, I'm currently for work. I've been pitching to a lot of book festivals for later this year. And it's been kind of cool just to see all the different stuff that North Carolina has popping up. So, of course, you know, we've got bookmarks and uh, Carolina Mountains Literary Festival. But I also just learned about one called the Ash County Library Literary Festival, which is kind of neat. And I saw Lexington has one now too um, that they've been promoting. So we've been kind of sharing that on our social. But um, but yeah, so just kind of 
uh, diving into that, and it's been neat to kind of see all of the North Carolina writers come together yet again. It is the writingest state for sure. Um, so that, and just my my kid has started uh, laughing a lot, so that's been really fun for me. <laughs> Sometimes she does it in the middle of the night, that's and cute. that's less than ideal, but still cute. So <laughs> I don't know where she gets that. I don't know where she gets that laughter from. So. I know, and then I just start like laughing with her, and I'm like, I mean, why not? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so that's me. Yeah. Can't wait to hear Glenn, yeah. Glenn's laugh. Yeah. Can't wait to hear it. You're so infectious. I'll, we'll I'll bring her on yeah. sometime. <laughs> yeah, we can yeah. add it to the soundboard. Yes, I love that idea. <laughs> what about you, okay. Landis? Good idea. Good idea. So yeah, I'm gonna. Um, I was recently on Grace Salmon's podcast. Uh, it's gonna come out March the uh, 13th, and uh, she's on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We had a great conversation. Uh, talked about uh, the novel Daily Decorations, but also a little bit about the book we're going to talk about in just a minute, The Right Quotes, The Writing Life. That was a lot of fun. So you can catch that on the Authors on the Air Liberated Network on uh, March the 13th. Uh, let's see. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, crazy stuff here. It's going to be springtime and lots happening. No, it's March Flowers already. I can't believe it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's March already. All right, well, look, let's, uh, let's, let's jump into um, – our uh, first uh, feature here, but before we do that, uh, just uh, just a quick word here. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. All right, here we are, our Act One. We've got uh, an author feature, Deborah. Goodrich Royce. I had the pleasure of interviewing her. Her book is Reef Road. Uh, Sarah, could you tell us uh, a little bit about uh, a little bit about Deborah? Sure. So Deborah is sometimes called the Queen of Plot Twists. Love Great that. title. Um, <laughs> she's author of two previous widely praised psychological thrillers, um, Ruby Falls and Finding Mrs. Ford. She's also a former film and television actress. She might be remembered by soap opera fans for her role of Silver Kane on um, ABC's All My Children. I used to grow up watching all my children with my grandmother. That's that feels close to home to me. <laughs> um, yes, her book in Reef Road, Deborah explores dec a decades old unsolved murder of a young girl. Inspired by a real life crime, the novel follows a winding path that begins with an unspeakable murder in 1948 Pittsburgh and culminates with a man's severed hand washed up on the shore of Palm Beach in 2020 ugh, in the heat of the COVID-19 <laughs> lockdown. Yeah, and it's gotten some good good praise. Kirkus Reviews gave it a starred review uh, calling Royce's murder mystery uh, involving generational vengeance in the time of COVID-19 would make the ancient Greeks proud. Royce is a wicked good writer. The gears of this clever plot mesh with those of a Swiss watch, truly absorbing mystery by a writer at the top of her game. And I will say this, and you'll hear this in the interview, but uh, very cleverly done book because you don't realize who's telling part of the story until about midway through and you go oh my gosh you know so it's uh, so it's Love two that. it's two point of views one in first person one in third person they sort of come together in the middle of the book and then all hell starts i'm definitely reading it. that so wow. it's, kind of, <laughs> it's like that's a cool advice. Advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah so all right so let's uh, let's let's get to the interview deborah welcome to charlotte readers podcast and congratulations on reef road thank you so much for having me landis i'm happy to be here yeah i really enjoyed it um and, and you know, I wish I could ask you some questions about some of the plot twists, but I won't do that because we want people to be surprised. Yes. <laughs> but uh, it, it it was it was a lot of fun. I, I would like to start with a couple of uh, 
uh, reviews you got here because two of the reviewers in the front of your book were on our podcast. One was Claire Fullerton writing for the New York Journal of Books who, who used a phrase, um, uh, exciting page-turning intelligence. And then Joni Elliott, who was also on our podcast, uh, who wrote the book The Audacity of Sarah Grayson, she used the phrase unforgettable thriller full of captivating twists. But both of these authors, um, they referred to flawed main characters. And, and I saw that too I was reading the book. So I want to start there with the characters. One is referred to as the wife. We learn her name is Linda. And the other is referred to as a writer. And we don't learn about her identity until much later in the book. I'm not going to give that away. But what I want to focus on just a minute, we'll get to the murder in a minute, but I want to fo focus a little bit on these characters and what drew you to them. Perhaps talk about a few of their flaws and their perceived motivations early in the book and what drew you to them. Okay, well, <clears throat> the writer is probably the primary voice of the book. Uh, her sections are written almost like journal entries in first person, and she's really shaping the narrative of, of the novel as it goes along. She's the one who's obsessed with the murder of her mother's best friend, and she is, well, to repeat that word, she is a very obsessive individual who goes down very deep research rabbit holes. So you're in her head a lot. She's lonely. She lives a solitary life with an old dog in a dreary apartment behind a grocery store. The other woman, Linda Alonso, is the juicier character in many, uh, if you look at it, in a cinematic way, she's more glamorous, more beautiful, she's younger. She has a, a snazzy marriage to a handsome fellow from Argentina, two beautiful children, and she is the more hot-blooded of the two and mm. gets herself into trouble because of that. Yeah, yeah she does. Um, did these characters arrive to you fully formed or did they change quite a bit over the course of writing this book? That's a really good question. Characters evolve as I write them. Uh, I had a, a strong idea of who the writer would be, um, maybe not not as as far as it went with the level of her fixation on this this crime and what it's done to her. And with Linda, she evolved to the, uh, the I'm going to use that word again, the extent to which she would go to get what she wanted. Each character wants something. You do not know what it is from the beginning, and, and she will go very far to get it. So you kind of, when, when you're developing these characters, do they surprise you over the course of writing? Did they surprise you in this book as to what they did? They certainly surprised me as, as the reader. Did they surprise you as the writer? My characters always surprise me. You know, you start a book, and you're going along writing, and when you get into that wonderful headspace, there are moments where you think, huh, I didn't know she'd say that, or I didn't know she'd do mm -hmm. that. And it is, uh, you do feel you're tapping into a, a greater source than yourself. Yeah. Well, um, both of these women have a connection to a murder of a 12-year-old child. Uh, you say in the acknowledgments that the story is not true, uh, that is, your novel story is not true, but it's inspired by a true crime. As much as you can, can you tell us a little bit about that true crime without spoiling anything related to this plot? My mother's best friend was murdered on December the 10th, 1948 in Pittsburgh. 
it has remained to this day an unsolved crime. The crime had a tremendous effect on my mother and in a, a lesser way on me. I think anybody who is tangential to such an extreme act of violence is forever changed by it in, in actions, in thoughts, in every way. So when the pandemic lockdown came along in March of 2020, and I was on book tour for my first book, and I was shut down in Florida, we were all, you know, what did we call it? Sheltering in place at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was. So I really thought now's the moment to finally research the true crime. There's a tremendous amount of material on the internet now, much more than I expected. And I didn't want to write it as a true crime. It's unsolved. I don't want to really mess with people's lives. There are, you know, survivors, but uh, it, it did become the spark for this work of fiction. Well, in, in a certain respect, uh, you know, they say that sometimes writers take on the role of the characters or the ca characters take on the role of the writers. Uh, your writer character is actually investigating, uh, you know, this a murder of a 12-year-old child and thinking about writing about it just as you were researching, uh, you know, this particular true crime and then thinking about what to do with that story. Does that happen often in your books where you find yourself uh, sort of in the head of one of the characters from what you've been doing up to that point before you start writing? In every book and every character, absolutely. So I was an actress for a long while. And I think as an actress, that's your training. You do, you know, method acting. That's the word that's used. And you, so let's say you're playing a murderer. Odds are you haven't murdered anybody, but you really have to find, you know, what is that basic human feeling that I've experienced? Uh, let's say you choose that, this person is murdering because of uh, envy, for example. So you dig into times that you felt envy and you just magnify it and you take it to a, a heightened degree. And I think if you do that with every character, if you use your own understanding of your own emotional range, then every character is real and believable. <clears throat> yeah, well, you, I was looking at your background. You were... Uh, started your career as an actress, uh, starring as Silver Kane, sister of the legendary Erica Kane, on the ABC soap All My Children. You've also starred in some feature films, and I'm just curious, uh, when it comes to writing dialogue, does that experience uh, as an actress um, help you um, do the things that authors are supposed to do that has cut out the dialogue that readers want to skip over? Exactly. Yeah. Being an actress does help you write dialogue. The other thing I would recommend any writers out there do, read your books out loud. Sit mm. down, read it aloud, take the time, because you will hear what doesn't work. You'll hear the clunkers. Uh, you mm. really have to do that. Who do you read your books out loud to? Me. <laughs> I sit in the room alone. <laughs> My husband would shoot himself. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's about eight, nine hours to read a book. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, I've had some uh, authors on the show talk about how they use, like, one of the online programs to read it to them, this bot that's reading it back to them, which is another way to do it rather than reading to yourself. But to oh, hear it hear it read out loud, yeah. Okay, well, we'd like to talk about craft, too, on the, on the show. And one of the things that jumped out to me as I'm reading this book um, is point of view. Okay, because you've got uh, the writer – uh, who's in first person. you got the wife, who's in third person close. We don't know necessarily who's telling the truth, so there's a reliability issue going on here. And, uh, you know, stories can <clears throat> either 
come alive or die, depending upon your choices and point of view. So talk a little bit about, if you could, how you decided to tell the story in the way that you decided to tell it, the lens that you decided to use for the for the writer and the wife and why you did that. Mm-hmm. So the different points of view, the writer's sections, as you mentioned, are in first person. I began the book in that way with her voice. Uh, her sections are almost like journal entries. She is thinking. She is talking you know, to herself. She's writing. I always imagine her sitting, writing notes to herself. And I wanted the reader to be very deep in her head. She's a woman who lives in her head. Linda, the wife, is a woman who lives much more in her body. She's a very physical, very sensual woman. I wanted that distance from her, the third person close. So you are getting a glimpse of her thoughts, but not fully. And I did want the reader for a while to perhaps wonder if Linda was a creation of the writer. Because if you recall, uh, her chapters have their own titles and separate chapter numbers, like a book within a book. So I, I wanted the reader for a little while not to really know if she was a real woman in Palm Beach or just a figment of the writer's creative imagination. Did you experiment with that? Did you try both voices in in first person before you decided to put Linda in third person? That's a great question. I don't think I did. I think I had a strong sense of how close I I wanted to get to each of them. Well, and and one thing that uh, you did that made me laugh out loud was there was this one point where you shifted to second person, a little cheeky, uh, you have a big reveal, and then the next, the next chapter you say, surprised, question mark, as if you're speaking directly to the reader. And so, I was just wondering, yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering about that. Did, did you, were you smiling when you did that? Was I that was indeed. A, <laughs> there's a meta, I love that word, meta, uh, there's a meta component to this book. It is self-referential. I dare not compare it in any artistic merit way to the French Lieutenant's Woman. But that French Lieutenant's Woman is a great example of a book that is very meta. You are, you know, there's a, there are different things going on and you're not sure. It takes a while to kind of catch on what's going on. So at that point, uh, it does become meta. You, mm-hmm. you know, the writer's in a conversation with the reader mm-hmm. then. Yeah. And, and the book is set, uh, Titles Reef Road, set on the coast in Florida. How do you make that choice? I was there. Uh, I was in <laughs> Palm Beach. Uh, I think, you know, there's a quote that's attributed, I've heard it attributed to Carl Hyacin, but then I've att- heard it attributed actually to Somerset Mom. Uh, Carl Hyacin may be referring to Florida and Somerset Mom referring to the French Riviera a sunny place for shady people. And I think Florida (laughs) definitely has that feeling. There's no more multicultural place in the United States of America than Florida. By that, I mean, you have so many levels of society going on. You have people who've come from other countries, people who've come from other parts of the U.S. for weather. You have the very rich. You have, you know, uh, 
sugarcane laborers. You have everything in Florida. And it's just a fascinating state. And there I was in Palm Beach. The pandemic locked us down. And I thought, I have to write this here because I'm sitting there writing every day. And then I'm riding my bicycle around the island mm -hmm. of Palm Beach. It's, you know, it's a barrier island, mm -hmm. like a mm -hmm. lot of the east coast of Florida. And it was like a Twilight Zone episode. It was absolutely deserted. <laughs> there was police tape everywhere. It was, I mean, talk about living through a unique time in history. Yeah, that, that's a good mood setter for the kind of book that you wrote here. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of authors kind of ignore the fact that there was a pandemic when they're writing their book. They don't bring it in. You do bring it into the story. Is that because you were actually feeling it as you were writing it? Yes, it is. Uh, that's exactly right. I was writing it during the pandemic. It was playing out day and day as I was writing. And I've heard the expression, you know, if you just write every day what's going on around you, you're writing history. I think it was an important moment in all of our history, certainly life-changing. And also, I think it was a fantastic uh, set of constraints imposed around each and every character, their emotions, their their ability to do things. When Linda's husband gets on a plane for Argentina with the two children, it's because of the pandemic and the border closures that she can't follow. So suddenly you've got a character who's restricted by mm -hmm. something going on. So that's, that's interesting. What's she going to do? How is she going to dodge around this? How is she going to find her kids? Uh, it, it just, I like the, it, it increased that sense of claustrophobia. Yeah. So, you know, her husband takes her kids early in the book. The other, the other writer is investigating this murder. We know they're going to come together at some point. We don't know how, and all that tension's building up. Uh, I've got a few more questions, but before uh, we do that, uh, you've got a little reading you're going to do. You want to set that up and uh, I will. do that for us? Uh, the book has a prologue. I'm not going to read the prologue. I'm going to start from chapter one, and it is entitled A Writer's Thoughts. So we know we are in the writer's section. When I look at photographs of Noelle, I try to gauge her expression for signs of what was to come. There are two pictures of her in newspapers, though neither is dated. In one, her hair is parted slightly off-center and piled atop her head in a Fraulein-style braid. I can't tell if one or two braids were plaited to wrap across the crown of her head, but the effect suggests a little German girl in the years before the war. Noelle's chin in this particular image is dipped down, her eyes look up to the camera, and her smile is slight, lips barely parted. Because the photos I am studying are taken from old newspapers from the weeks and months, even years after it happened, the pictures are grainy and pixelated. The upward regard of her gaze allows the whites of her eyes to show underneath the irises, thus lending her an expression that the Japanese, or maybe it is only the macrobiotic practitioners, would call sanpaku. George Osawa, founder of the macrobiotic movement in post-war Japan, identified this characteristic, the whites of the eyes being visible either above or below the irises from the position of a straightforward look, as a sign of extreme ill health or imbalance, which he attributed to the worsening diets of his countrymen through the influence of Western culture. 
This trait, he believed, was an indicator of those marked for death and has been noted by other macrobiotics, I know this because I used to be one, in the gazes of a gamut of doomed historical figures ranging from Rasputin to Marilyn Monroe to Charles Manson. All of them, we can safely agree, qualified as marked for death, although death in Manson's case did not happen to be his own. Ironically, in the photo of Noel in question, she is looking up at the camera, not straight ahead of her, so she cannot really be called Sanpaku at all, though marked for death she was. Shall I stop there? That, that's great. In fact, it's, it, if you hadn't had one picked out, that's exactly what I picked out. Oh, really? Oh, like-minded. I love that. <laughs> yeah, like-minded, yeah. All right, well, because you uh, started in the writer section there, I, I wanted to point to a couple of areas in the book um, where the writer is actually educating the reader on what it's like to be a writer, or at least questioning what goes on in a writer's life. And at one point you say, the writer says, is it okay for a writer to be sly, to wink at the reader a little? Is it okay to allow oneself a little fun along the arduous path of plotting and pacing and character building a book? And so I'm going to turn it on you. How would you answer those questions from your character? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I was really <laughs> asking that question. You know, when I wrote this book, the, the two perspectives are so different. And, and as I said, it is a little bit meta. And the, the writer section are, are really addressing the reader in a different way. And I thought, is anybody going to get this? Will people even understand? Mm -hmm. And as it sounds like you know, you have to be a writer yourself. I can tell from our mm -hmm. conversation all you can do is do what you do. You just kind of have to go into the room and do it. And I think you can never write for other people. If you write for other people, you're playing a game and you're going to misjudge it. If you write for yourself and really put your heart and soul into it and do the very best you can, and when you decide your book is finished, really, if it's a book you can stand by and, and feel like that is the book I intended to write, it is guaranteed that somebody else will get it. I don't know how many other people, mm. maybe one, maybe a million. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a nice insight. I'm what you call a recovering trial lawyer. I did trial work for 35 years and I turned to podcasting and writing. And so I'm just very curious about, you know, how other writers do what they do. And so, yeah, that, that I thought that was fun just to, you know, sort of be in a conversation uh, in the book with this writer who's thinking these thoughts. But, uh, all right. Well, here's a question we ask um, writers sometimes. Um, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value about writing that had you known it uh, sooner, it might have helped your younger writing self. Based on all your experience, what would that be? If I could tell my younger writing self something, it would be do everything you can to find your own voice. I think most people, when they begin writing, think they have to aspire to a particular type of voice. Um, whether you want, you know, the, to write the great American novel, so you, you're 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 reading Fitzgerald and you're reading Hemingway, or whether you want to write the great Southern Gothic novel, so you're reading that whole host of writers. You know, I think when we're starting out, we we pick the writers we like and think about emulating them. One of the greatest things I did over the years before I was published, because I wrote for a long while, 
before I was published, I joined a couple of writing groups with really like-minded people and kind people. You never want to be with unkind mm-hmm. people. And as you go, <laughs> you really don't want to do that. As you go along, you start to understand what it is about your own voice that other people recognize and respond to. And it's not that you're changing what you do for them, but you're noticing what it is about yourself that makes you unique. And that's a very powerful thing. Yeah, well, some some have referred to you as the queen of plots. And I'm wondering if that's a moniker that uh, you're not so sure about because you're you're actually very character driven here. You got the, you know, you're getting deep into the characters. I interviewed John Hart and he talked about how, you know, he approaches novels from characters first and, and the plot just sort of serves the characters, not the other way around. How do you approach it? I mean, you're very character driven, but you also got all these plot twists. Uh, which do you want to be? The, the, the character or the driven author or the queen of plots? Or... <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> well, uh, so far, first three books have had very strong plot twists. And as yeah. you know, the difference between a reveal and a twist is a reveal is just when you find out who the killer is, but you always knew you know, what the story was. A right. twist is, is generally when you realize something very different is actually going on from what you thought was going on. So my first three novels have twists. I didn't so much intend to have them. I do. I'm a huge Hitchcock fan if we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. movies. So Mm -hmm. I I love that Hitchcockian thriller. I like to call them identity thrillers, the books I write, because they're very deep examinations of the secrets that people keep. I'm fascinated by... So that's character. People's Mm -hmm. secrets. You know, I'm a woman of a certain age. I've, I've lived a while. And we all meet people. And occasionally we meet people who really are keeping major secrets that uh, knock us for a loop when, when we find out that we, you know, just couldn't see it at all. That fascinates me. Well, I could tell you did a lot of research uh, for the book. You bring a lot of interesting facts into it. But I also feel like for one of these characters, you might have been um, more kind of pantsing along, but then at the same time, just letting yourself discover who these people are. But then on the other hand, if you're going to be plotting and have twists and so forth, are you a big outliner or do you kind of just uh, approach it and have these plot points in your head? So I don't outline. I do extensive notes and my notes take the form of what if. So Mm -hmm. what if um, I, I got an email recently that is sort of the genesis of another book. And it Mm. was from a man who referred to certain parts of a a shared past that I didn't remember. So uh, it intrigued the heck out of me. So Mm -hmm. I started this long thing of, well, what if she has a drinking problem and a, a flawed memory? What if she really did have a past with him? What if she didn't have a past with him? Mm-hmm. What if her husband hired him because he wants to get rid of her? Well, then why would he want to get rid of her? Well, what if they had a fidelity clause or an infidelity clause in the <laughs> prenup or this or that? So I go along with all these notes. And as I'm you know, free associating all these thoughts, mm-hmm. uh, I get to a certain point where I might start writing and then I modify the notes. I also do another thing. I it, This is so kind of hokey, old school. Mm-hmm. I print out month-at-a-page calendars from my computer. You can find, you know, any year Mm -hmm. in recent history, like December of 1981 or February of 1999. You can print it out. And if you start, if you lay out all those 
calendars, particularly in a thriller where you have to keep your plot points straight, if you have a point where, you know, Joe last sees Mary, and then you go on, and if your book is nonlinear, you can always refer to when that moment actually happens so you don't mess yourself up. Mm-hmm. I have found that really crucial for keeping myself organized. Well, that's real comforting because I've taught some authors who do these 20 and 30,000 word outlines. And I'm like, God, that sounds exhausting, you know, to, <laughs> to get into a book. Well, look, we're, we're running out of time here. Anything you want to say closing uh, about the book and uh, before we finish up here today? Yeah, one thing I'd like to say, it really digs into themes of generational trauma, which is something I'm very interested in. I just read a nonfiction book called It Didn't Start With You about the scars we carry from earlier generations. And it's really blowing my mind that it's really, there's a genetic component to these scars we carry. And it's not that there's nothing we can do about it. There are things, but there are more metaphysical things that we can do, kind of meditative exercises of releasing uh, certain traumas to, to our ancestors, our grandparents, letting it go. So that is very much a theme of this book. And I don't know if it's an answered question, but the question mm-hmm. is posed. Well, Deborah, I want to thank you. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading other books now, now that I've gotten into this one. So thank you for coming and sharing your story here on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you so much. The pleasure's been mine. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, here we are in Act 2. Uh, we're going to have a Charlotte's two-minute tip, followed by our discussion of the right quotes Book one, The Writing Life. First, uh, the Charlotte tip. This is Paul Rialli's tip on how to get started, and uh, we might as well get started. Hi, I'm Paul Rialli from Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the first of four tips about how to get something started. Emerging and novice writers, when confronted with a published writer, often ask this question, where do you get your ideas? It's the wrong question. The writer Harlan Ellison tells this story. People ask me where I get my ideas. I always tell them Schenectady. They look at me with confusion and I say, yeah, there's this idea service in Schenectady. And every week, like clockwork, they send me a fresh six pack of ideas for 25 bucks. Personally, I love this answer since I grew up in Schenectady. But the truth is, if you are a writer, the ideas should be coming to you from literally everywhere. So here's a better question. What makes something worth writing about? Today, we look at one way of finding something worth writing about, what I call take two damaged people and bang them together. This is a character starter, a starting place that's dictated by the people you're writing about rather than about the story. You use this kind of starter when you have the picture of a person or persons clearly in mind and you want to know more about them. If you write nonfiction, you already have a toy box full of people to write about. If you write fiction, your life, your day, 
is full of potentially interesting people. The 20-year-old waiting tables at your local diner who has just moved here from Queens. The line cook who started this diner three years ago and is still there for every shift. The guy in the bespoke suit and Omega watch sitting in the booth at the end. Any of these lives are worth exploring. Your action step then is to take any character you wish to explore, define who they are now, imagine a little backstory, add a bit of life's damage, that is, and then repeat with the second person. Put those two together, make them interact, just write and see what happens. Before I send you off to try this, let me say a few words about damage. We all have our damage, the wounds left from childhood, even if that childhood was mostly idyllic. We have doubts, insecurities, lies that we tell ourselves. The unwounded character is not an interesting character to write about because they do not exist in the real world and because they have nothing to learn, nothing to solve, nowhere to go but down. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right. Uh, thank you, Paul, for that uh, tip and uh, for you know, knowing how to get uh, some ideas for 25 bucks from Schenectady. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, you know, this is a question uh, that y'all have asked that I've asked. And a lot of times when you ask this question about where do you get your ideas to authors, they kind of gloss over a bit because they're trying to remember how did I get, how did I get yeah. this idea? Because sometimes it's not always clear where the ideas come from. Speak to that issue, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a weird thing to think about where your ideas come from because sometimes it does have a very clear specific source, but so much of the time it's just, I had an idea like this person just came into my head or this story just came into my head and I, I don't know where it's from. Um, and I think Paul's right that inspiration is everywhere. It's all around you. It's daily life. Sometimes the most interesting stories I think are rooted in things and people that feel um, kind of small and real and every day. But if you can really dig into that and make it feel authentic and really kind of pick apart what these people are doing and why they do the things they do and why they think certain ways. That's always interesting. Like people are fascinated by other people. Um, and real people are always like Paul was saying, so complex and everyone has damage. <laughs> we all have issues. We all have backstories. Um, and so, yeah, you don't have to make your characters, these grandiose, larger than life figures. Like if you make them true to life, then that's going to be interesting. And if you have, like he was saying, take two damaged people and bang them together. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Like if you, if you create characters who are interesting enough, then the story almost inevitably is going to be interesting too, just to see how those people interact. I know. I remember that Clyde Edgerton in one of our quote books uh, says, and he said this on the podcast, uh, you know, the, uh, writers can be like just crazy bird watchers. You go into like a restaurant and you hear two people arguing in the next booth and suddenly you find yourself listening because yeah. that could mm -hmm. be a story. <laughs> You know. That's true. What about you, Hannah? Do you find yourself listening sometimes? <laughs> oh, I'm the nosiest person ever. <laughs> I'm just like, love the celebrity gossip, love regular people gossip. <laughs> like, love it. Okay. Um, well, well, how, how do you get your ideas, Hannah? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, I love what he's saying. And I feel like the last part of that made me kind of emotional where he was just like, we all have our damages. And um, I think that's super powerful. And I think for me, my ideas totally come from people, my interactions with people, just like listening to people if I'm taking a walk somewhere or seeing you know just like anywhere I am it's just that's kind of I think 
people are the most relatable things to read about. And um, it's totally true to think like, well, okay, well, what made this person do this? That kind of thing, like the trauma that, and I'm really into reading about generational trauma and just like all that, how it kind of hides itself inside of your brain. Um, I think we're our own biggest mysteries sometimes. And so I think like solving that mystery and the people around us is kind of the most inspirational thing ever. Um, So yeah, I mean, I totally, totally agree with that. And I feel like Paul has the best voice to deliver these tips also because he just <laughs> makes me feel emotional sometimes. <laughs> All right, good, good, good work, Paul. Well, that's what writers are supposed to do. Yeah. You know, bring out the emotion He's killing it. On, on the page <laughs> and the audio. All right, well, let's, uh, let's uh, shift here for a minute to, uh, to our first book in the Write Quotes series. This is book one, The Writing Life. Uh, it's, uh, I think we've probably... By the time this comes out on March 7th, worked out all the kinks on uh, on Amazon. But it's also available wherever books are sold. It's also available in print now at Park Road Books and uh, it'll be in other places as well. You can actually get the print version now out there if you like to hold it in your hand. It's a nice little five by seven. Also fits in a back pocket uh, and you can flip through it and find the quotes you love. And uh, I wouldn't say cut them out, you know, because you don't want to destroy the book. But, uh, you know, <laughs> take a copy, stick it to your wall, whatever. But uh, And just a reminder here, book one is also free in an ebook form online. You can go there and download that for free and kind of get a taste for what we're doing here. Um, but to give you a, a taste of what we're doing here, um, each of the books come with a foreword. Uh, they come with... Uh, you know, uh, reflections by me. So we're going to do that today. Uh, Sarah has recorded the audio for the four. We thought we'd start with that. And then we're going to share some of our uh, you know, favorite quotes from the book to give you an idea of what's there uh, and kind of spark that conversation. Then we'll finish uh, with the uh, audio reflections by me. But let's hear what Sarah has to say here in the forward of book one, the right quotes, the writing life. One of the best parts about joining Charlotte Reader's podcast as a co-host has been expanding my writing community to include our listeners, contributors, and author guests. And one of the best things about the writing community is that it loves a lively debate. That spirit comes through in these pages. While many of the authors quoted here echo each other's perspectives, sometimes they conflict. Do you have to feel inspired to sit down and write? Is it ever too late to start a writing career? Do you find the drive to write within or because someone else encourages you? Above the differences, One common theme that surfaces from these quotes is the need to write, that four days in the desert sort of thirst. Our authors express this idea in different ways. Some mention that they've wanted to write since they were children or that it's all they ever wanted to do. They record the difficulties of writing, how time-consuming, unprofitable, mentally taxing, and emotionally demanding it can be, and then they say that they love it anyway. Some talk about characters inside their heads, shouting to have their stories told, or claim that they feel driven to write to discover what's next in a story that's already inside them. Many say that they write because they can't not write. Storytelling is an essential human need, probably as old as fire, and it's similar to lighting a match, creating energy out of darkness, conjuring something out of nothing. What we do as writers is mysterious, thrilling, ancient, and intimidating, challenging, sometimes maddening or tedious. No matter how much you love your craft, you probably have moments where you want to throw out your computer or notebook and go work at a sloth sanctuary or something instead. Believe me, I've been there. In those times, I hope you can turn to this book and sample some of its quotes for inspiration, 
a reality check, or just a reminder that you're not alone on this journey and that what you write matters. People need stories. If you have a story that you feel the need to tell, I like to think that's because there's someone out there who needs to hear it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, thanks, Sarah, for that. Uh, get us started today. Uh, you know, and it kind of made me think. You know, if 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 they're if you've written stories and and they're out in the world in the form of a book, don't forget about our elevator pitch that you can go do for free at uh, the podcast website. Go to the tab there that says contacts. Look for the elevator pitch and just click on that and record your record your audio. We'll put it up on the podcast as we're going to do for one later in this episode. So um, let's do this. Uh, great spark for the conversation. Um, so we're going to start with uh, maybe a couple of quotes here. And Hannah, what's your number one favorite quote from this book? I loved, I've tried not to write. And that's basically when the characters start stalking me <laughs> from Renee Winchester. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, and characters do stalk you. I mean, I've, I've got a couple stalking me right now, but when are you going to start that uh Next book, Landis, in the series, you said you told people you're going to read that. You need to get started. He's like, excuse me. Jaeger, I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> he's, pushing, he's pushing me. And I'm like, but I had to do this series of eight books for the podcast. And he's like, I, I'm not into the podcast books. You know, I, I want to. He doesn't do care a, about that. I, I want to do another mystery. Uh, so <laughs> g- give us give us your favorite, Sarah. Uh, one of my favorites, there's so many good quotes in this book, but uh, from Mary Beth Whalen, she says, I can't help but write. It's just the way I process the world. I interpret everything through story. And I really do believe stories are the shortest distance to the human heart. Yeah, yeah that's great. So I mean, beautiful. Like just mm-hmm. the, the idea that, uh, you know, you can uh, make a difference with a story, um, I think is why a lot of writers write, uh, you know, and it's... Uh, it is true. Uh, I think that was even one uh, got posted on social media yeah. uh, recently. Yeah, uh, Hannah did that. Yeah. I love <laughs> yeah. that quote. And I honestly, when I was thinking of, that's probably, you know, t- I love that one. And then I was like, well, yeah. I'll pick another one because we don't need to have two. But um, I think I put that in our newsletter too. It's just so good. It's, <laughs> it's such a good quote It feels quote, like though. magical yeah. to me, you know, it's like a kind of mm-hmm. sparkly quote. I love it. Uh, and mine, it's the first quote in the book because, hey, I get to decide what's first in the book, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, it's it's Maureen Ryan Griffin who was on the show. She's a, a local poet and a writer, and she's been teaching writing for many years. And she said, "It's never too late to start writing." And that was written for me because uh, you know I got started late in writing fiction, uh, and I, I think it's true that a lot of Writers don't, for lots of different reasons, don't get started until later in life. But this idea that it's never too late to start writing, I think, is important uh, to remember that uh, sometimes people say, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm too old to start writing. It's like, and I'm like, wait a minute, look at all the experience you've got. You might have been too young to start writing <laughs> if you didn't know a damn thing when you started writing. That's a good <laughs> point. Know? Yeah. You know, you need to learn something. Get out there and learn yeah. something. Get out there and live, you know, do something. Right? You know? And then, and then <laughs> you can some write. Quote, I think it was, I think it was Virginia Woolf, um, some author from 20th century, I believe, but she says something about, um, like, for heaven's sake, don't publish before you're 30, yeah. something like that. Like, 
<laughs> Which I, I love that idea that, you know, sometimes I don't think it's ever too early to start writing. We've had writers even in their teens and 20s mm-hmm. on the show, which is awesome. But yeah, I think the, the longer you're here and the more life experience you get, that only makes you better and richer as a writer. <laughs> I think somebody, somebody on the podcast was quoted as saying something about Carson McCullers being asked about writing classes and stuff and about whether they you know, encouraged young writers to, to, to become writers. And she said, I think they encouraged too many of them, you know? <laughs> and so anyway, all right, let's, let's uh, throw a couple other quotes here. Uh, Hannah, you got another one you want to share? Yeah. Um, the other one I loved a lot was that moment when all is possible and you have a bunch of good stuff. I love that moment because it's a little bit like the tip off of a basketball game. By, and Scott Fowler said that. I love that because first and foremost, I'm a huge college basketball fan and that I just really like that kind of tie-in <laughs> to basketball. And also I, I just love the idea of like this magical moment when the beat drops, right? So that's kind of the idea I have in my mind where it's just like, oh, it's, anything's possible right now. It's just like on the verge of something great. You know, I think that's a really exciting yeah. feeling and I just loved it. I remember when I interviewed Scott Fowler early in the podcast uh, life, and he uh, he talked about how he would would gather all his information and he would put it on the page, all his research, all his interviews, and everything. He'd put it at the bottom of the page. He said he kind of cheated himself to think he already had a bunch of good stuff right there when he started writing. He said once he had that, then it was exciting to sit down and just yeah. write. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. Love it. And speaking of having everything just like you needed to get going, uh, you've got one too, Sarah, right? Yeah, um, that's kind of my process, actually. Like, I, I love the blank page, but I'm also afraid of it. So yeah. <laughs> I like to trick myself and put stuff <laughs> actually on the page to get started. Um, but that's kind of tied in with this quote from David Joy. He said, every time I sit down to write a book, it's as if you've never written a word in your life. I love David Joy. <laughs> and well. I was so kind of relieved. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, I think when I read that, I was like, okay, so it's not just me. <laughs> like, I've, you know, I've been writing for years. I've written a bunch of things. I've written full length manuscripts and feature screenplays and stuff like that. But every time it's like mm-hmm. i've never done this before what yeah. am i doing uh, it's almost too like you you realize how hard it was and you're like oh gosh this is going to be this is going to be hard <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. again uh speaking of which it ties right in well to my second quote i'll share it was uh Teresa Ann fowler who sarah interviewed on the podcast uh she says a lot of writing is just bricklaying and I think that's true. I mean, I think a lot of times it's you got to sit there, you got to use your discipline, you got to get the words on the page. Um, yeah, there's a creative process involved, but you've got to just do it and you got to do it again. You got to build, you got to stack those words up like you're stacking bricks, and then you got to cement them together so they don't fall apart. Yeah, <laughs> and I like that you got to stay with it. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, uh, one more quote uh, from the three of us here. Uh, we'll start uh, with Sarah this time. Yeah, this one is from Kevin McElvoy. He says, I try always to understand with clarity, with humility, that what I write is not for everyone, that it will be more powerful for some readers than others. Um, And I think that's a subject that we've heard a lot of authors talk about is finding your audience or how do you deal with, you know, some people liking your work better than others or dealing with rejection. Um, And, you know, it's just such a it's such a big part of the writing life, I think, is knowing that not everyone is going to respond well to your work and that you have to just kind of accept that and let that go and find the people who do appreciate your writing and who are on that wavelength and know that if other people don't, then that doesn't mean that you failed in some way. It's just it's all subjective, you know, and in the same way that 
everyone thinks differently and, and that's part of what makes us great writers is that we can all tell a story in our own unique ways we're also going to respond to stories in our own ways and from our own perspective and so um yeah that's something I like to remind myself of it's just like nothing is going to be for everyone yeah. <laughs> it's all very personal that's that's true and when you get your one and two star reviews just keep that in mind because not everybody <laughs> likes <laughs> everyone gets them so, yeah, they're just exactly. not yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not getting them you're not getting enough reviews that's the thing yeah true you, you've got you've got beyond your family and friends yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> uh all right hannah what you got for us yeah, I really love this one from Jay Ward. He says, I like the idea that my story can be helpful, that in a world that is stressful and chaotic, my words could bring laughter or inspiration or provoke thought or at least or at the very least just provide enough of a diversion to ease the weight of the world. That is just dope to me. <laughs> I love that. I thought that was really great because, um, you know, I feel like that sort of drive to write um, and that sort of realization that maybe something that you have to say, your ideas, it's kind of like an escape for what's crazy going on in the world, especially over the last couple of years with the pandemic um, or just anything that's happening. It's like bringing laughter. It's, it's very, it's, I don't know. I feel like writing is a very emotional craft and it's cool that the idea of just like, I don't know, people helping people see and feel different things through your writing. I think mm -hmm. it's a really cool concept. Yeah, and this last one we'll share uh, before my reflections. Um, so Anthony Abbott, uh, he passed away, uh, I think it was last year, year before, and he, right beforehand, I had the pleasure of interviewing him. Um, and he said this, uh, writing is not about writing necessarily. Writing is about living. And the more deeply and fully you live, the more you're able to write which kind of circles back to our earlier comments about, you know, living and experiencing things to be able to put, put it on the page. So um, I was really drawn into that quote. That's a uh, good one. Actually, all of these quotes that we just did. So it was great. Um, but here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to drop in now uh, my reflections, and then we're going to come back and finish up with a few uh, book recommendations uh, and wrap up the show. But uh, here are my reflections, the audio reflections from the, uh, from the first book, uh, the Write Quote series, The Writing Life. Lessons I learned from the quotes in this book. One of the biggest lessons I learned from the quotes in this book is that no matter how much or how little money writers make or lose in their writing lives or how demanding writing can be for them, they grab for their pens and fire up their computers mostly for the love of it. Writing is like a giant magnet that sucks them in. They have a common urge to create, to use letters, words, and sentences to tell stories either about themselves or others or about characters they create and befriend in their writing chambers. They also write for therapy or to understand themselves or the world around them. They write for the sake of writing, and they write for publication. They write to be remembered, and they write to be heard and understood. And as more than one author said on the podcast, they write because they can't not write. Each writer quoted in this book combines their curious spirit with interesting life experiences, a combination that enriches what they write. As the late Anthony Abbott so eloquently said on the podcast, writing is not about writing necessarily. Writing is about living, and the more deeply and fully you live, the more you are able to write. There is hope in this book, but there's also a lot of angst and humility. Case in point is a comment by John Hart, a New York Times bestselling author is the only author ever to win the prestigious Edgar Award for consecutive novels. 
he said that the writing life is so unbelievably wonderful that he feels deep down that the universe must have plans to take that all away. It makes him work even harder on his next book. Similarly, best-selling UK author Lisa Jewell admits to making so many mistakes over the course of her career that it became part of the process, saying she had to make mistakes over and over again to get to the point that I'm at now. Perhaps the key to good writing is not putting one word on the page after another, but putting one bad word on the page after another. That is, making one mistake after another until it clicks. As a former athlete, I see the writing life as a competition, but not the kind you may think. Claire Fullerton said, there is no competition out there. And Dorian Dupree said, I'm not in competition with anybody. They're right. It's why you see so many car dealers on the same busy road. Everyone needs a car like everyone needs a book, so why not make it easy on them? So, no, authors are not so much in competition with each other. We're really in competition with ourselves. We are the hero in our own hero's writing journey, beset with obstacles and bound to face reversals and setbacks. We have to fight hard for that happy ending to our journey. And yet, sometimes lightning can strike, as it did for Jason Mott, who won the National Book Award in 2022. He said he went from literally answering the phones at Verizon Wireless to a year later having this book, describing his experience as very bizarre, kind of the golden ticket syndrome where I got to go in Willy Walker's Chocolate Factory. What I love about reading the words in this book is that most authors are drinking the same Kool-Aid as me. I hear words like the best of times and the worst of times, and I perk up. I've never been a long-distance runner, but I relate to the parallel that writing is a marathon, not a sprint. And I laugh when they say, there is no finish line. I nod when I hear that writing shouldn't be painful, though at times it is, and that it should be joyful, which it also is at times. I smile at the notion that writing takes the right temperament because patience is not my strong suit, and I marvel at how they get me when they use words like these to describe the writing life. Fun, challenging, discovery, fulfilling, demanding, interesting, dreamlike, hell, and best of all, my happy place where I don't care about anything else in the world when I'm writing. These writers tell us to relax and enjoy the journey, to trust ourselves and write what we love, and to learn the rules so we can break them. Huzzah to all that. But most telling to me is the advice in these pages that it is never too late to start writing. I was a trial lawyer for most of my life, and while I loved to read for pleasure, I was too busy with work and life to get serious about writing. It wasn't until my mid-50s that I actually finished the story that turned into my first published novella. I was juiced by the process, coming home every night from work with a desire to write. My wife asked when I got home, where are you going? I always said, I'm going to find out what happens next. A good book is full of conflict, something I was no stranger to in the practice of law. Becoming an author meant that I could do what I was never able to do before, control the conflict. And that, my friends, is a wonderful place to be. These writers say they have a desire to write and write well. They say creativity makes them feel alive. They say writing cleans them out. They say the part that surprises them is why they write. They say there are so many more ways to make money, but they chose writing anyway. They say that a lot of writing is just bricklaying. They say the characters are wholly not them, but there is always a piece of them in there as well. 
They say that writing is a release, that they get lost, that they escape, that they want to live in their imaginary world, and that writing is their most satisfactory way of communicating with other people. Amen and amen. When I compiled these quotes, I found the following words I'd voiced on the podcast about the writing life. I share them in the hope they will be helpful and also, really, so I don't forget them. Most good ideas look crazy from the start, so embrace them and see what happens. I call myself a recovering trial lawyer because I work hard to get rid of old habits, to get beyond my past of trying to be practically perfect in every way. It's a trial lawyer's poison. And shift instead to being open in my 60s to creating ventures that might fail. I veered off for 35 years so I could earn a living before I started doing the things that you can't necessarily earn a living at. Though I hate to say it because Julia Cameron might be listening, writing for the sake of writing can be its own routine. In addition to the peace of mind that comes with writing, who knows what masterpieces it will produce. It is one thing to learn the mechanics of how to write a novel and quite another to complete a novel. Writing a novel is hard work. It takes patience, endurance, discipline, and perseverance. There are plenty of opportunities to quit along the way. It's important to find ways not to quit. Asking questions is a fine way to connect to the writing process. You can ask questions about the craft of novel writing, but the better questions the ones that will keep you writing your novel until the end are the questions that stir your imagination. I believe you need to be a lifelong learner with both your writing career and your marketing career. Ask questions, read articles, listen to podcasts, talk about it. Writing can be a form of ad-libbing. You're into something, you're writing, and then something comes to you you didn't expect. Be creative. Have fun with it. I've come to understand that writing a story begins with the words, what if? Speaking of what if, what if I had never taken up podcasting and asked the questions that led to this book? The simple answer is I would have been poor for it. All right, as we wrap this up, um, Hannah, tell us where we can find the book. Yeah, you can find this book online and wherever books are sold. And when you do, you support the podcast. And Sarah, they can also get the book. They can also join our Patreon page, which is as little as $5 a month. And if you're signed up through Patreon, we're going to send you one ebook a month from the series for free as they release um, for every month that you're a member. So you get all eight books in the series for free if you're part of our Patreon. Plus, if you're a member, you'll have access to more than 150 exclusive episodes that we have recorded for you. Yeah, and those books we send to our Patreon members, um, there are these digital PDFs, so you can click around in them and it's really nice. Uh, and also, uh, if you want to find another way to get books free, oh, if you're into free stuff, I mean, seriously. Uh, <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> you can join our street team. We'd love to have you join our street team. It's easy to do. Go to the contact page uh, of the podcast. Look for join street team. Uh, we will do the same thing uh, we do for our patrons. We'll send you that digital PDF. All, and basically, what you're going to do is you're going to go online. You're going to leave reviews, and you're going to tell your friends and neighbors about the book and help help share it and uh, yeah, so, um, and not all the books are going to be free like the first book uh, ebook is. So if you want to join our street team, we'd love to have you do that. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits. 
but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap up here with Act 3 at about five minutes uh, of stuff. And that stuff includes a few book recommendations. Uh, We'll start out uh, with Sarah. What you got, Sarah? So I've been reading um, Big Swiss by Jen Began. I've been listening to it on Libro.fm. Um, I'm really enjoying this one. It's about this woman who lives in kind of a like quirky hipster town in the Hudson Valley. Um, she works as a transcriptionist for a sex therapist in town, transcribing his patient ses- sessions. And there's a woman who, um, she's tall and she's Swiss. So the main character thinks of her in her head as Big I Swiss. I love this title. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's such a great title. Um, it, it definitely like sticks with you. And uh, the, the main character is listening to this patient sessions with her therapist and she becomes kind of like obsessed with this woman you know long distance but then they actually meet in real life and you see kind of how that plays out um so it's a really interesting plot the characters are very unique the writing is a lot of fun it's it's very funny and kind of irreverent and just the way that she puts sentences together and the kind of turns of phrase and the images are really surprising sometimes um so it's it's a great character story it's a great sort of story on the level of the prose and the sentence by sentence reading. Um, so yeah, I, I'm definitely enjoying this one. It's a lot of fun. All right. Well, Hannah, I don't know if Gwen's giving you any time to read, but oh you have gosh. anything you want to share? <laughs> well, first of all, I just want to make a note, Sarah. I feel like every book that you read and recommend always has a cool title. <laughs> like most of them have some <laughs> sort of like, draw you yeah, I, I, big Swiss. That's a cool one. Um, yeah. Mm. Well, Gwen, yes, she's, you know, she kind of just hangs out with me now while I listen to audiobooks. So thanks to Libro.fm like, for giving my reading life more life. Um, but I'm actually recommending one that I've, I'm rereading right now because uh, Paul Mezcal, I don't know if you guys have seen the series Normal People. It's based off of the Sally Rooney book, Normal People, um, which I'm recommending today. But Paul Mezcal is in it and he's just, he was nominated for an Oscar. And so I'm rewatching it, rereading the book. But um, speaking of like, I'm kind of glad I put this one in here today because it kind of ties back into the tip that Paul gave us just about like observing people and how people are the most interesting parts of a lot of stories and this is definitely a very character driven book um, about two people who have been in a relationship kind of off and on over the course of a decade Um, so it's it's very much like conversational it's super it's like these two people are the only characters basically so you just kind of observe their relationship and um, what went right what went wrong it's really kind of a beautiful story and I I love Sally Rooney books they're all kind of like that so it's um, it's a slow burn but it's a good one all right that's great well um Everybody remembers uh, Pat Con, the late Pat Conroy. Um, mm-hmm. Written a lot of great books. He's down from Hannah's neck of the woods. There, um, he's he's got a book, and I, I'm I'm sharing this because I'm pulling books off the shelf when I run out of time. Here, I've read this book. I started reading it again recently. It's a Low Country Heart: Reflections on a Writing Life. It's a very personal kind of memoir related, but it's got a lot of good writing tips in it as well. If you're interested, read uh, A Low Country Heart: uh, Reflections on a Writing Life by Pat Conroy. Uh, and now um, Mark West is with us again, as usual. Let's hear what Mark has to share. Hello, this is Mark West with the Story Charlotte blog. My recommendation today is a memoir by Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter's been on my mind lately, and I've gone back and 
reread some of his books. Carter wrote more books than any other president other than Theodore Roosevelt. One of my favorite of Carter's books is a memoir he wrote about his childhood. It's titled An Hour Before Daylight, Memories of a Rural Boyhood. This book was a finalist for the 2002 Pulitzer Prize in Biography. In this book, he writes about growing up on a farm in Georgia, but he writes about more than his boyhood experiences. In many ways, this memoir is also a history of the South during the Great Depression. It's a very memorable book, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, thank you for that, Mark. Uh, Jimmy Carter is in the minds of everybody these days. Uh, and uh, great, great uh, legacy that he brought. Not just, I mean, you know, there's lots of dispute about whether his presidency was what it should have been, but certainly uh, he's been one of those presidents after his presidency that's done as much or more to sort of uh, do, do for, for everyone else uh, as anyone could. So thank you for that, Mark. Um, all right, well, in, in the spirit of elevator pitches, uh, part of following our book recommendation, we've got one from C.S. Smith. Let's uh, listen in now. My name is C.S. Smith. The title of my book is Near Miss. It is a steamy romantic suspense novel, and it's about a former British Special Forces officer who finds himself in a deadly cat and mouse game with someone connected to his past. His attractive new American colleague is caught in the middle. To save them both, he must do the one thing he swore he'd never do again, trust another woman with his life. All right. That's a great pitch, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah she's got the plot in there. She's got kind of the character yeah. story. Yeah. Too. Whoever said that uh, steamy romance didn't have plot, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> most, most of the romance authors I've talked to on the show, um, I mean, they, they have plots built in. It's just, you know, some people be, read through the plots quickly, you know, mm -hmm. to, <laughs> to get to page 27, page 54, whatever it is. You know? <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that. For others, y'all can share yours. If you're a writer and you've written a book, uh, you want to pitch your book, it's uh, 30 seconds or less, and uh, give it a shot. All right, Sarah, in your excellent podcast voice, can you tell us what's coming next? <laughs> Yeah, next time we have an interview with Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Irish Yamashita. Um, Publishers Weekly calls her a major new talent in the book world, and Library Journal calls her book, City Under One Roof, a memorable debut crime novel. We also have a feature with Caroline Alanthus, who is the author of two novels, To Give a Rose and Ecological Memory. Um, and she's going to be sharing her blog post called On Containing Multitudes, which explores the multiples inside writers. And then we also feature a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, some elevator pitches, and our book recommendations. All right, uh, Hannah, can you take us out of here? <laughs> yes, everyone. Thank you for listening. Read on, ride on, and rock on. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>